Hi there. My name is Captain Craig Buddy from the History of Pirates podcast. I'm honored to be speaking to you all today on behalf of Ray Harris Jr. Ray's graciously allowed me to introduce this, the latest episode of his epic History of World War II podcast. Since it started, I've been enjoying every episode, and it's been a habit of mine since early on to check for a new episode on an almost daily basis. Ray covers the history of World War II with such clarity and from all sides of the war that I constantly find myself learning from every episode. His understanding of the subject matter is obvious, and as listeners, I think we're all lucky to have such a teacher. I'm proud to introduce my friend and yours, Sir Ray Harris Jr. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 130, Slight of Hand. Last time, President Roosevelt was able to get the Neutrality Acts changed in August of 39, so that short-term loans could be made to belligerent countries. But that was a long way off from what Britain and France would need. Still, it was a start. And hoping victory was in their future, it was time to lay the groundwork. Thus was created the British Purchasing Commission, or BPC, and though based in New York, it was under the British Supply Board, based in Canada. This would hopefully calm the isolationist crowd. The French also set up their Purchasing Commission in the same building as the BPC, and the two department heads met informally each day. Before long, the U.S. Secretaries of War and of the Navy realized they weren't a part of this picture and started howling to the skies. The president calmly responded that, as more than 50% of the purchases would be of non-military material, and that the liaison committee responsible for working with the BBC would have military representatives on a subcommittee, everything they would normally do was already being handled. America could rearm as it helped the Allies. In reality, FDR knew that if the War and Navy Departments were in charge, They would, together, swallow up all U.S.-produced goods, leaving nothing for Britain or France. So, through short-term credits and British gold, the Allies started buying machine tools to build up their war production capability, that is, throughout the first half of 1940. But after Norway and Denmark were attacked, and then the Low Countries, the purchasing turned to finished goods. Guns and such were needed. Now. Near the end of 1939, the British government started selling British-owned American stocks to raise money. But within a short amount of time, the market, if you will, was glutted, and the prices or values of those started dropping. So the British were forced to go back to using their gold to get more bang for their buck, or in this case, gold bars. Arthur Purvis, head of the BPC, brought in a few ideas to the president and he morphed those into creative accounting techniques, such as perhaps American-produced goods could be diverted to the Allied cause, as in the goods could officially be made for American use, but then sent to the British. This thinly-veiled idea didn't last very long, but again, it was something outside the neutrality laws and something closer to the future idea of Lend-Lease. The reasons this didn't work out was simply American public opinion. In late 39, almost 37% of the people were 
okay with neutrality and cash and carry only, whereas 24% of them wanted neither to give aid or get involved. Later that year, another poll showed that 82% of the people did not want to loan money to the Allies, period. The president was swimming against the tide. Yet, strangely, another poll soon after, yes, the White House was seen if anything had changed, found that 62% of the people were okay with loaning Finland money for war. Remember, they had paid back their World War I loans. Capitalism at its finest. As 1940 got underway, FDR found his efforts to help the British restricted by the coming presidential election later that year. Anything he said other than, this or that was good for America, and America only, may have cost him votes. And if he still wasn't in the White House in 1941, then all his efforts would have been for naught. Besides which, the phony war wasn't helping his cause. Where was the threat, after all? Sure, Russia had invaded Finland, and the American people felt really bad about that. But still, they weren't willing to raise a hand or hand over American goods or cash. During these dark days, FDR wanted to keep the momentum going by, at the very least, selling the British anything that could fire a bullet. Even sending them field glasses wasn't beneath his efforts, as it could help the British home guard who were on the lookout for the Germans making their way up the Thames, or coming ashore in southeast Britain. And then, something unexpected happened. The Nazis were knocking at America's door. No, not as an invasion, but they too appreciated America's attempts to stay out of the war, and were also wanting to buy American goods, mostly iron ore, copper, and molybdenum, a mineral that, when used with steel, helped weapons like large guns and tank turrets from warping from excessive heat. But the White House put so many hurdles in front of the Nazis that by the time there was even a possibility of daylight, the British had already purchased said items. Of course, those purchases drained their gold and dollar reserves even more, yet the material was kept out of German hands. This was a win for the good guys. Another win came when Treasury Secretary Morgenthau, as it was determined, his help couldn't be all that much until after the election, if FDR was re-elected for an unprecedented third term, worked tirelessly to make sure American producers were not making obscene profits from British sales. The fact that this work was being done by the Treasury Department, with its experience of tax issues, served it well. As spring of 1940 came, Britain focused on buying food from the United States, as well as tools to build up their production abilities. And yet, in order to gather more dollars, the British sold goods to America. But as those purchases had the smell of desperation among them, the prices, and hence the profits earned by the British, rarely rose, and most times, lowered. But that wasn't even the biggest problem. As the Allies dabbled in buying ready-made weapons, they found that the U.S., for all its industrial might, hardly had a munitions industry. So many years of anti-war and isolationist tendencies had shrunk the works and made them unpopular, if not un-American. They would have to change fast for the Allies' sake and for America's. But what too many Americans couldn't figure out, because for various reasons they didn't want to, was that the solution to their economic woes was staring them right in the face. 
Britain was looking to spend millions, if not eventually billions, in purchases, war and non-war goods. They just needed credit. And if anyone was good for it, it was the British Empire. Another kickstart to the American economy would have been if more money was spent by the U.S. government to buy war goods for their own use. But Congress was behind the American people, who were themselves lagging behind the president and like-minded individuals. Besides Congress's slow-turning wheel of progress, there were those, and some were high-ranking, who set themselves against FDR's desire to help the Allies. And with the president's hands tied until after the election, his frustration with the situation grew more intense. As for the men in uniform who stood against him, well, that was easy enough. The president simply ordered them, including General Henry Arnold, head of the Army Air Force, to quit making waves, or they would find themselves serving in Guam. In essence, toe the line or retire. Gradually, things started moving in the right direction for those who wanted to help the Allies. But progress wasn't being made by those alongside FDR. It was Hitler's invasion of Norway and Denmark that reminded the American people of how horrid war could be. The pendulum might not have started swinging the president's way, but it surely slowed down, swinging away from him. By the end of April 1940, the U.S. had not, honestly, helped the Allies all that much. Their biggest contribution was an aircraft, and there the Allies weren't getting the best or latest. The real progress made from the start of the war to the spring of 1940 was America's current mental state. It certainly wasn't pro-war, but it was less isolationist. It was more closer to non-belligerency. Warriors aren't trained to worry about how much their weapons or uniforms cost. Their job is to fight as efficiently as they can, while their superiors do whatever they can to make sure the coming battles are as unfair for the other guy as they can be, and to make sure their soldiers have what they need. So it will come as no surprise that just days before Nazi Germany attacked Western Europe, the British Chiefs of Staff Committee declared that financial considerations should play no part in not only preparing to defend the island and France, but also in winning the bloody thing. After all, what was the point of fighting Hitlerism with one hand tied behind your back if that very thing causes you to lose with money still in the bank? So, as the Low Countries and France were invaded, and the position of Prime Minister went to Churchill, he had the slowly morphing American opinion going for him. What's more, the new Prime Minister had been communicating with the U.S. President privately since November of 39. This could only be viewed as a good thing, except for those whose job it is to represent their country to the other country's leader. This was the position Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax was in when Churchill took over, and later Anthony Eden when he took the position in January of 41. As for Roosevelt, this was how he had normally worked. For the Prime Minister, this was too important to be left to anyone else. And now that he was firmly in the saddle, Churchill had intermediaries say to the American ambassador, Kennedy, that wasn't it time the U.S. offered a line of credit to Britain, say, a few billion? This was in early May of 1940. Soon Kennedy put out his own information, knowing it would get back to 10 Downing Street, which counted 
Didn't the British Empire still have about $4 billion in assets? Why was it asking for credit now? To this, Churchill borrowed a page from FDR's book and asked, and it was granted, if he could send someone to Washington, this being the Undersecretary of the British Treasury, Sir Frederick Phillips, to discuss directly a line of credit. In this way, the troublesome Kennedy was sidestepped. But Churchill also believed in grasping at every opportunity there was, as it was his country that was in the balance. And so he invited Ambassador Kennedy for a chat. Coming right to the point, the Prime Minister asked America officially for help. Kennedy, representing his own country, replied, What help could we give? And we haven't forgotten that you didn't pay back from the last war, and that it was assumed by many that the Allies were on their way out. Anything the U.S. did short-term would be of no value, and for now, the British still had plenty of money, so the request didn't make sense to the ambassador. There was no official response to this, but one can easily imagine the next cigar Churchill put in his mouth was probably lit by the firestorm raging inside his mind. After watching the ambassador leave, the Prime Minister sent his first telegram to the U.S. President in his new capacity. Kennedy had had his chance. Churchill's letters, starting with this one, and until the Lend-Lease Act was passed, maintained a conversational tone that spoke of specific needs and never mentioned credits directly, except this one time. Churchill asked that the U.S. declare itself a non-belligerent and to give all aid short of war, that Britain would fight on, alone if necessary, but if they did, and they lost, the overall situation would probably then be too much for the United States to alter. His next line got down to specifics by asking for destroyers and aircraft, and then skating near the issue of financing. This one time, he wrote, We shall go on paying dollars for as long as we can, but I should like to feel reasonably sure that when we can pay no more, you will give us the stuff all the same. FDR's reply came the next day and was equally equivocal. He asked for some specifics about Britain's needs of aircraft and destroyers, but did not react to the hint of credit, though he did say that other matters would be discussed when he felt it was okay to talk about them. Winston had baited his hook and got a nibble. The rest of his correspondence during the fall of France was limited to requesting immediate specific aid. With a shopping list from Churchill in hand, FDR asked Congress for a bill to buy and therefore make more weapons. They just happened to coincide with a telegram from London. And though FDR did not mention the British, the President did ask Congress not to try to stop him from selling aircraft to the Allies. Even though Congress said yes to this, after all, money was being made by the companies who backed many congressmen, this was help still months away. As for now, in fact, that same evening after his request, FDR asked General George Marshall, Army Chief of Staff, to make a list of what could be sent to the British from their current inventory. Marshall had to admit that the current state of American preparedness was so pathetic that anything that could still shoot, such as guns from the First War, could be counted as desperately needed by the U.S. 
Still, after a few days of casting an eye of strange perspective at his current inventory, the chief of army staff sent his list to the White House. But stopping these guns, aircraft, and ammunition from actually crossing the Atlantic were, well, laws, like the Johnson Debt Default Act and the Neutrality Act. But that's what lawyers are for, for making laws and then for breaking them. Throwing a team of lawyers at the problem, older, forgotten statutes were rediscovered that allowed the weapons to be sent. Still, it was legal murkiness, to say the least. But that was good enough for FDR. Everything checked out, given the older laws from a certain point of view, and the United States had the U.S. Steel Corporation on June 11th buy the items on Marshall's list and then immediately sold them to the Anglo-French Purchasing Commission for $37,619,550,660. The items had been in the warehouse of the Steel Corporation for only a few hours. The shipment went out on June 13th. Yet with this shipment were several artillery pieces, and there was no way, as long as they could shoot shells, that they could truly be classified as surplus. So if any part of the shipment was illegal, it was those guns. And this bothered the normally stoic Army Chief of Staff, Marshall, who, it was said, you could break stone on his jaw, and whose gaze would one day intimidate the formidable Eisenhower. In fact, this kind of work so worried the Army Chief of Staff that he refused to approve any more large guns until February of 41 when American manufacturers promised him they could make good the losses. And if Marshall, along with his Navy counterpart, Harold Stark, felt any more pressure, and they certainly did, it was because of the National Defense Act passed in late June of that year, just as this murky business was being wrapped up. It said that their two positions now had the responsibility to make sure that helping the Allies in no way slowed down the process of the U.S. readying itself for war, or at least a strong defense. Personally, both men felt whatever they gave slash sold to Britain was nothing more than a stopgap measure. To them, it was only a matter of when the U.S. entered the war. That was the only true way this whole mess could end well. But the month of June 1940 was hard on other men besides all those Frenchmen, as their country quit the war against Hitler. FDR had his lawyers continue to look for loopholes into helping the British. Most men in Congress spent an equal amount of time and energy trying to stop him. The people of the British Isle waited for the coming invasion. FDR didn't ask Congress for anything specific, because, and rightly so, he didn't know what their response would be. Meanwhile, the purchasing agents for the Allies were told not to hold back any money. We need what we need ASAP, so get on with it. As for Churchill and FDR, they both gave speeches that month that set the tone for the next few years. The Prime Minister, with his We Shall Defend Our Island speech, put the word forth to the British citizens, but equally important, to the American people. Britain would never give up or give in. Therefore, it was not a waste of anything to give them guns. They would be used in fighting the Nazis. From his post-Dunkirk speech, Winston had done all he could 
to turn a miserable defeat into a ringing call for action. And arms. Still not done with June yet, Senator Key Pittman, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, openly warned Churchill to leave the home island, for it was only a matter of time before it was the site of Germany's latest victory. To wit, Marshall and Stark penned a memorandum to the president saying, We cannot advise you to send anything further to Britain, or to continue any talk of helping them out financially. As all of our sources say, they will be out of the war within months. Behind the scenes, the president told both men to act as if the British would still be in the war six months from now. Publicly, the president knew something was called for. Using the commencement speech at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, my adopted hometown, FDR told the graduates and the world that he was committing the United States to helping the Allies. Simply, it was beyond stupid, not his words, for those who believed America could get on with its lives while freedom winked out all around them. The example he gave of this new world order was of Mussolini attacking France during its death throes. No one of that stripe could be trusted. So America would rearm, would make itself strong, doing so at full speed. His words. But more than that, America would undertake this task while supporting Britain as well. Both were equally important. Both would be done at the same time, given the same priorities. America was given its marching orders. Yet, it's important to note what the president did not say. He didn't say anything specifically. He never mentioned credits to Britain. He never said when all this would be done. He didn't mention planes, heavy guns, ammunition, or the like. Instead, the man was attempting to turn public opinion to his way, to his thinking. America, Britain, and the Axis were put on notice. And yet, days after his speech, FDR still did not have a firm or even loose grasp of Britain's financial worries in regards to buying American goods with dollars. But he did know for certain Congress wasn't ready to give him what he wanted. Just yet. But having said that, there was one point on which the legislative body agreed with the president, and that was, arrogantly, the sacredness of the Monroe Doctrine. The Americas, North, Central, and South, were within the sphere of influence of the United States. That could not be allowed to change. If the Nazis wanted a Caribbean vacation spot, they would have to come through Washington, which meant that a year-old bill was rediscovered, renamed, and made into law in July of 1940. The law made it legal to sell to Latin American countries surplus and anti-aircraft guns, as well as letting Latin countries build ships in U.S. shipyards. Nothing much came of this law, but it showed that Congress was coming closer to the president's thinking, in that helping others to defend themselves was actually helping the United States as well. And thinking that he was finally getting somewhere, FDR sent out feelers to Congress about taking this new law and adding Britain's name to the list. Then money was brought up, which effectively killed the unofficial conversation. But then the entire situation took a turn, and not for the better. As the German armies dashed through France, 
two questions arose. One, would France continue to fight from North Africa? And two, if they did not, what would happen to the war goods they had ordered? Churchill figured out pretty quickly, even with their dollar and gold situation, it was imperative that Britain take responsibility for those orders, or the U.S. military would. For as much as Churchill wanted to order, and FDR wanted to sell, the French orders, especially for planes, were easily equal to Britain's, which would enlarge Britain's cost tremendously. They, the French, didn't have a body of water between them and the Germans, hence the more frantic and larger orders. For example, during the first half of 1940, together Britain and France ordered some 8,000 planes and 13,000 aircraft engines from the United States, the majority belonging to the French. By June 16th, it didn't look good for France. But as sorry as Churchill was, he told Purvis, the BPC head, to get those orders. Although it was a Sunday, the British and French members of the purchasing commissions spent the day negotiating the transfer of the French orders. If anything, this conversation and process was sped along when, at 2 p.m. New York time, word came of Premier Paul Renault's resignation. And since they all could guess that Marshal Philippe Bataille's request for an armistice would mean the loss of those orders, the French and British members, along with an OK from the White House, wrote out the transfer, which was signed the next day, June 17th. The British now owed another $612 million of debt. But they had those planes and other items meant for France once they were built. As June turned into July, public opinion polls seemed to indicate that the American citizenry were starting to change their views. The percentage of people polled rose when asked, should economic aid be given to Britain? Yet, less than 6% wanted to declare war against the Axis. Then again, a different poll with different wording showed the exact opposite. So FDR still looked for loopholes and moved cautiously in helping Britain. Did he want to get into the war? Who can say, as nothing was declared publicly or privately. Yet his justification never wavered. Everything he was doing, he claimed, was to strengthen the Allies and thus keep America out of the war. And this stance seemed to be working with the people, but more importantly, seemed to frustrate those who wanted to get involved in the war. Was FDR doing this on purpose? Who knows? but it was working. Wall Street players started coming over to the White House's position of helping the British. Some even wanted to actively participate in the war. Were they just thinking of profits? Probably. But it's always better to have rich people on your side than against you. The White House went on doing everything it could to help Britain without bringing Congress in. Mostly because, as some of them were thinking about their own re-election, they wanted to focus on domestic issues. Also, during that fateful month of June 1940, the Republicans nominated Wendell Wilkie as their presidential candidate. As Wilkie was all about staying out of the war and focusing on domestic issues, FDR had a few more months of freedom with international issues. Another candidate might have harped on everything the president did or said concerning Britain, the war, and the aid to the Allies. But Wilkie spoke only out of staying neutral and what was good for the American voter. 
Having such a person to run against, FDR, and here is where his actions are all that matter, made some changes to his cabinet. Newspaper publisher Frank Knox, who had turned down the position before, this time accepted the post of Secretary of the Navy, but only if another Republican was brought in as well. This did not bother the president, as he was considering such a move anyway. So in came with Knox, Henry L. Stinson, former Secretary of War and of State, to be the new Secretary of War. Both men had previously and openly declared that America should be moving mightily to rearm herself and help Britain at the same time. Suddenly, FDR looked like a moderate. And with these two appointments, the White House put the country more on a war footing, while FDR focused on domestic issues in gearing up for the general election in November. The two Republicans were kicked out of the Republican Party, but generally the move was seen positively by the American people and by many who would be voting Republican that November anyway. The rest of the summer was spent by the president running for his unprecedented third term, trying to keep America running as normal, while doing everything he could legally, and there should be an asterisk here, to aid the British. Also, there was a message sent to London that basically said, received your two specific lists of war material on June 27th and June 29th. Thank you. But for now, we are going to need you to hold on until after the election. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So as this episode is only coming out days after the last one, I just have two people to thank. So thank you to Clay H. from Charlotte, North Carolina, for becoming the latest member, and to John W. from Jamestown, Rhode Island, for buying a Churchill mug. And um, John, if you ever go by the Naval Base in Rhode Island, that's where my son's uh, stationed at now. Wave hi to him. Um, and and again, I just want to thank Craig Buddy for for the introduction. You should definitely check out the History of Pirates podcast. And Craig is one of the nicest people I have ever quote unquote met through podcasting. So check it out. Uh, you'll learn a lot, and you'll have a good time. Take care, everyone. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.